Hello and thank you for joining me here on the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel and today I'm joined on the show by Tegan Bennett-Daylight. Here at Final Draft, we love exploring books, writing and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And we're, look, we're dedicated. We love exploring Australian writing. This is from debut authors or from the classics, the people that you grew up reading, the books you know and love. Each of these conversations is a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Tegan Bennett-Daylight is joining me on the show. Tegan is an incredible author of novels and particularly novels for young adults. And her new new novel, Royals, it is an absolute spin. It is, I got so much, had so much fun reading this. It's such a trip. There is such a, an amazing twist in it. Um, I... It's one of those books where, you know, you don't want to give too much away, but I can let you know that it is a little bit, a little bit fantastical, a little bit weird and absolutely full of heart. So join me as we discover Tegan Bennett Daylight's Royals. It is my pleasure to be welcoming to the show to get today, Tegan Bennett Daylight. She is a writer, a teacher, and a critic. Her books include The Details and Six Bedrooms, which was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Tegan's latest is Royals, and I am really excited to be talking about it. Tegan, welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to be on 2SER. Now, I don't want to go too dramatic, but it is 5.17pm on a day much like any other in a shopping centre in Western Sydney. Six teenagers find themselves alone. Shannon only glanced from her phone for a second and then when she looked back down, her phone was frozen and the world had gone quiet. Surprise then annoyance forces Shannon out into the mall's concourse, which is eerily still. Fear then curiosity lead her to explore the mall, where she finds Tiana, Grace, James, Akira and Jordan, equally alone, equally confused. What has happened to the world and are they truly as alone they believe. I had to do a dramatic what voice there, Tegan. I, I, I think that was a suitably dramatic intro. Yeah, that was a really great description. I'm going to give you a job. <laughs> Let's start with your heroes. I'm going to call them heroes. This mm. is a terrific ensemble and um, I've, I've given everyone their names, but I, I'd love for you to sort of flesh that out. I wondered how you landed on each of them and their unique histories. Yeah, well, um, as you know, but for your listeners, the book is written in first person. It's from the point of view of Shannon, who is really kind of a mixture between myself and my daughter Alice. The actual name, interestingly, all of these names came really, really quickly, and usually I sort of um, spend a bit of time fiddling around for names. Shannon is named after a student of mine, so I'm a university teacher, and I've been teaching creative writing for the last 30 years. Shannon was a really remarkable student that I had. She just had a really beautiful energy as well as being clever and talented. And so when it came to writing the book, it was just automatic. I just, I called the character Shannon and the real Shannon knows and she's got a copy of the book and she's very excited, which is great. Um, Some of the characters are based very much on life and some are not. 
Uh, James is based on James, who's a friend of um, my son Patrick's, who who is one of those characters who kind of leaps into your house and leaps into your life. So I did name that character after him. Um, Akira is based on my kid's godfather, Patrick, who my son's named after. And what have we got? Jordan, Tiana and Grace all just kind of sprang fully formed, although they're not based in it, on anyone. And uh, Juno is a baby. Obviously, your listeners haven't found this out yet unless they've read the book that the kids find a baby early in. And Juno is the name of my niece. So she's named after my niece, Juno. Oh. There you go. They're just and they are just fabulous. Royals is is very much it's a character driven novel for all of the incredible setup that we will get to. Through Shannon's eyes, we get at first a highly suspicious and then a, a more open view of the group. They become something of a found family. So they're in they're in this shopping mall. They're alone. They're not sure what to do, and through their ideal their ordeal, they become something of a found family. Can you talk a little bit about just establishing those relationships and the importance of those relationships for, well, I guess I guess for everyone, but I mean, mostly for, for teenagers? Yeah. So the book was, um, first, first of all, it was conceived in lockdown. And I just want to add that I hate people who do useful things in lockdown. And then I became one of those people. I was trapped in the house with um, three teenagers and my partner and... Um, the kids couldn't go anywhere and one of the things they missed was the mall. So I started asking them what would they do if they could get there and have the mall to themselves. And uh, many of those things have made their way into the book. But the other kind of conception point for the book was um, my hatred of Lord of the Flies. Uh, I don't know why, but I can see you laughing. (laughs) Every generation of like literally I studied it in 1983 and uh, a few years ago my daughter Alice studied it at Katoomba High. So it's one of those books that just keeps coming back. The reason I hate it is I think it's a lie. I actually, uh, I I firmly believe that um, if a bunch of teenagers were stuck in a strange universe, which is what happens to these these guys, that they would have troubles, but they would look out for each other. I was also really sick of dystopia in general. I feel as though uh, Gen Z have got enough to be thinking about without reading more and more stories about how everything's going to shit. So so those were the sort of the, the characters first, I guess the situation second, and the anti-Lord of the Flies book third. Quite, quite deliberate in that way, although at the same time, it was a very um, easy book to write. It just came so quickly. It took me five months, which is really, really, really unusual for me. Okay, we've danced around a, about, you know, half of the rest of my questions, but I feel like we can still That's deep okay. dive but a little bit All here. of those thoughts I can, I can my- <laughs> expand. I'm, I'm really into this book. I can talk as long as you need me to. My, my, very, my, my next question was, was literally noting that the group are just lovely they are really cool people they are kind they are generous to each other and i wondered was this a clap back to the way teens are too frequently portrayed as the end of civilization as we know it but it, no it was it was just lord of the, it was just like william golding middle finger mate yeah thorough middle finger both hands um yeah they 
my um, extremely wide experience with with Gen Z. So, so one of the things that I've been doing is I've been teaching for thirty years. So I've seen wave after wave after wave of eighteen year olds, basically. So I've been watching them. I've never I've never had time off teaching. So I've seen that happen over a really long time. And there are two things that I've seen increase in that generation, and one is definitely anxiety, but the other is generosity, kindness, openness to each other, tolerance of difference, those things. So I really see that in my kids, the, the kids who are in my house, but also the kids I'm teaching at the moment. There's just a, there's just an openness uh, like I said, the tolerance of difference is particularly important. So I didn't feel at all as though I was writing a falsely happy story for these kids. They felt really real to me, and I've had lovely responses from young people about that. What what I really wanted to make real and make clear is that I guess the book is a kind of a handover to Gen Z as well. It's saying, I think you can be really good custodians of this damaged planet. So please, please take it on. I know you can do it. Um, I've had people really pleased with and then maybe wondering about the diversity of the characters. So just to just to let your readers know, um, Shannon is white. She's a little she's a little gender fluid. Um, she's super anxious. Um, Tiana and Grace are cousins. They're Indigenous. Um, Jordan is white. He has a disability. He's had meningococcal as a boy and lost a little boy and lost both his legs to that. So he has prostheses, but he doesn't have them with him because he's come into the plaza with his chair. Uh, James is Greek-Australian with a little bit of a penchant for wearing a frock. Um, Akira is white and queer. And you know, um, well, she. One of the things I didn't really want to do was to notice the kids' ethnicity for them. So I leave it to them to notice each other's ethnicity because that's another thing. No, nobody's completely colourblind, but I do find um, this generation of kids as colourblind as you can imagine they might be. Um, and do you know you find out right at the end is Korean Australian, but. But, you know, she can't say that and the kids, they, they, it's not something they think is worth discussing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. With such a diverse group, I was really curious about how you went about uh, exploring their characters and respectfully and authentically capturing those characters. Like what, what sensitivities did you want to be aware of as you drew out their stories? Yeah, look, there's, there were a few things at play. Some of the characters... Um, I felt I knew really well. So Akira, as I said, is is based on a really, a really, really, a family friend, really. His partner, um, Yanni, is uh, Greek-Australian, but James also, the real James, is Greek-Australian. I felt comfortable in that space. Shannon, obviously, I felt comfortable portraying. Um, I have uh, my kids' school, Katoomba High, is partly Indigenous-run, there are a lot of Indigenous staff and kids there. Um, I've taught a lot of Indigenous students, but understandably I'm not going to go about writing Indigenous characters either from the first person or without having a cultural reader. So um, a wonderful uh, Indigenous writer did a cultural, what's called a sensitivity read, but I prefer cultural read, 
of the book. And she really taught me a lot. The changes that she suggested that I make, she never demanded that I make, but the changes she suggested I make were not enormous at all. They were actually just making my Indigenous characters, actually in particular Tiana, that she didn't make many changes to Grace, who's 12, Tiana's uh, 17. Tiana was very angry right through the book and in brief, um, my Indigenous reader said this cliche of the angry black woman uh, is a cliche, so have a think about that. Um, So I definitely did. Um, With my disabled character, Jordan, um, I also had a a cultural reader who was queer and disabled, so she was able to sort of read across the characters for me. Um, One of the things, again, I, I, I... I was really happy to hear that I'd done a decent job, but that there was always still more to do. Mm. One of the things that she really made me think about that I thought I'd thought about but not enough was um, access. So in in an interesting way, a shopping mall, and this one's based on Penrith Plaza just for the locals, um, a shopping mall is a pretty accessible space as they go because it does have a lot of open spaces. So someone in a wheelchair can move around relatively easy, easily. There's lifts, shops are generally reasonably spacious. Well, one of the things I hadn't thought about was access behind counters because all of the kids, um, except Grace, have a job. But Jordan, who who's in his wheelchair on those days in the in the plaza, can't get behind the counters. He can't have the average teenage job at Macca's or at General Pants because his wheelchair will not fit behind a counter and um, counters are also not set at the right level for somebody in a wheelchair. So those sorts of things um, are what the um, my queer disabled writer helped me think about and some just some, some language stuff that needed a little bit of tuning as well. So, again, it was – I've only had one or two people say, huh, is that real diversity or is that forced diversity? And and my response to that is look around, people. This is Australia. This is a really rich culture. And if you pretend people don't exist, then you're not telling the truth. So that's this is the way I told what they call my truth. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tegan. It's, it's a pleasure to dive deep into a story. And I think as readers, that's why we pick up books for that unique opportunity. But Gosh, I love a good process question and I I really appreciate the detail you've gone into there because this is something that I think we we see so many knee-jerk reactions on social media. Are there any other type of reactions on social media? I don't really know. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) We see so many knee-jerk reactions about... Um, you know, either, as you say, you know, forced diversity or appropriation and to actually look into the process of how one writes and explores something outside one's own experience is with with time and care. That's a really unique opportunity. I thank you so yeah. much for that. I think, I think finally also is that any author ought to see um, a cultural reader as an opportunity rather than a shutting down because it didn't feel like a shutting down at all. And and I didn't do everything that was suggested. Some some things about language, I thought, no, I, I think I'll just stay where I am. The other thing I wanted to say to any aspiring author or any aspiring thinker is the ABC show, You Can't Ask That, is 
just an amazing wealth of material and and thought, really deep thought. So I did I did watch lots of episodes of that to be able to think my way into these characters. It is a fabulous show. I Isn't love it. Isn't it fabulous? It really yeah. it really is. It makes you it makes you sad and it makes you angry at times, but you know, you can't run away from those feelings. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. I, I've established how much I love these characters. I've established what a brilliant character-driven novel this is. And we've kind of ignored this whole six teens stuck in a shopping centre thing, which is compelling. But teens stuck, teens left to rely on their wits and metal. Like you've you've told us of your, your great um Great fandom for uh, Lord of the Flies, but I mean, look, this is this is classic fodder for teen drama. It is, yeah. But your crew, yeah. your crew know this, and they reference everything from Hunger Games to The Breakfast Club. Tell me about working, I guess, in this kind of postmodern soup where pop culture now can't help but be aware of itself. Yeah, that is a great question. Thank you. It's um, you to me, you, you cannot write a teen book without the teenagers being aware that this story has already been told in a sense. So what happens to my teenagers is they, they come out into the mall. It's as far as they know, empty. They make their way to the food court and find each other and they can't get out. They're stuck in there for about six weeks. So one of the things they have to do is try to figure out the rules. And when they're trying to figure out the rules, of course, they're referencing other situations in which people are trapped somewhere. So they they spend a fair bit of time talking about things like the Hunger Games, the Matrix, the Truman Show, the sorts of um, things that are either contemporary for teenagers or just classics. One of the things that comes up is Squid Game as well. They discuss whether they're there to learn a lesson about love or, in fact, just to hunt each other down and kill each other. So that's part of their kind of puzzling out process. What what is really going on? Because um, as you know, the the plaza turns out to be a parallel universe. It's not um, just a plaza in which they're stuck. It's got a kind of logic of its own. Um, so they do spend a lot of time trying to figure out that logic, and of course, at the end, they do figure it out. I was trying to um I was trying to think of the most uh, off kilter or like deep cut references that work with that story, and I'm almost certain. And this is going to be I'm I'm showing my age, Tegan. You'll probably know this as well, though. I think there was an episode of Doogie Howser where um that was very much that kind of stuck scenario. And my name is Earl. I think they did a shopping mall type of thing too, where similar to yeah. your similar to your teens, they were like amazed at their access to you know, just different products. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, you know, all children's books and all YA, which is the way you'd classify this book, although it's got a lot of adult readers already mm. too, um, they really almost always take place when there are no parents in the room. That's that's the sort of point, the independence of children, what they make of situations when they're left alone. So if you go right back, you look at things like um, – the secret garden or something like that. It's always a character who's alone and has to make her way, has to figure out how she's going to live without parents. Um, those Edith Nesbitt books like Five Children and It, they, the, the, the war often comes into it. The Narnia books, of course, no parents as well. 
Um, the psychology of this is also fascinating because, of course, there is the external world, but it, it depends on how we react. And, and this kind of brings me to your scenario is also classic horror jump scare territory. Like if you if you actually just Google, you know, people trapped in a space, you you have to dive pretty deep to get any of the normal stuff. You, you're getting a lot of horror movies thrown up. You manage to work in with this a little bit. I'm not going to talk too much about detail. People get to read and discover. Was it tricky for you, though, balancing so many genre tropes as they emerged in a cohesive way? Not really. Um I, I've been writing for so long, so I've been in print, I've been writing books since 1990, I think. So you do get very experienced and you do learn to trust the way your mind works. So those potential jump scares, um, fears, all of those things, they actually come up, the book moves in the way that I thought it, if you know what I mean. So when a when a potential jump scare turns up, a potential fear, um, a potential pleasure as well. Those just occur. The book was written almost exactly as it reads. I mean, of course, there was editing and there, I did have some solving to do of the of the central kind of um, uh, plot, I guess, the central idea of being stuck there. But, yeah, they just – I just – Annie Dillard, who wrote The Writing Life, I'm not sure if you've read that, but it's the best book on writing there is, the best book in English anyway. She says, you follow the line of words. And that's what I do. I just follow the line of words and see what happens. It takes a while to learn to do that, but that's what I do now. Um, moment of truth question, Tegan. Uh, would you want to be trapped in a shopping centre for any period of time? Look, if I had what my teenagers have, so let me let me enumerate what they do. So the first night they spend in the plaza is no fun. Uh, they sleep on the benches in the food court because, of course, the food court is um, all roads lead to the food court. Um, and they're cold and they're miserable and they're scared as well. The next morning they uh, realise that there's a 40 winks in the plaza. So they instantly make up a very large bedroom in the plaza. There's no Wi-Fi. Their phones don't work. So they can't stream anything, but they can pull a whole lot of tech into their huge bedroom. They can watch movies, they can listen to music, they find a gym, they work out listening to music. And then, of course, there's all the food that they can eat, all the shoes they can wear, all the clothes they can dress up in. And they discover three or four days in that uh, every time they take something off the shelf or scarecrows buy it, it renews. So the book is kind of a fable of capitalism as well. So in that situation, I might like to be trapped in Penrith Plaza. So, yeah, but, but not as long as they do it. Obviously, it turns bad after a while. Yeah, and look, I, I've come to the point, I feel like we have to give a nod to the mall. It's a bastion of late 20th century consumerism. And, and in Royals, the, the shopping centre, we keep calling it a mall, we're going to get tweets. Yeah, no, I'm stuck with that as well. It's really hard <laughs> as not to avoid in, in Royals, the shopping centre, it very much takes on its own role and character. I've, I've personally developed my own theory about your shopping centre and, and the mystery at the heart of Royals, but I was really curious where the shopping malls or you, you've talked a little bit about the, the wistfulness of, um, of shopping for your kids in lockdown. <laughs> How has it been in your life that you've immortalised it in this way? 
you mean how how have I felt about the mall myself? Is yeah. that what you're- was was yeah. it always going to be the mall? Was it just that product of of being lo- of lockdown or you know I, yeah. it doesn't feel like yeah. it could have been anywhere else. The only other place I've been thinking about the book for many years, and and like a fool, I thought I couldn't write it because I don't write YA, and then I realised I can write whatever the hell I want. So for a long time, um, I actually was thinking about a hotel, which I also thought was really, really fun. And you, Andrew, are a mountains person, so you will know the Carrington Mm -hmm. at the top of the hill in Katoomba. I've spent a lot of time in the Carrington, particularly because that's where they have the writers' festivals. Um, And it's quite grand, isn't it, And, and quite beautiful, um, so I did think about, you know, rooms and corridors I was really interested in, uh, beds, obviously, food, but it didn't have as much variety. And, in fact, over the years I'd, I'd changed to, uh, to a shopping mall anyway. I, the, the hotel idea was quite an old one. But, yeah, the shopping mall, it has so much possibility. It was just so much fun to write. I can't tell you. It was just I had, um, while I was writing it, I had the map of Penrith Plaza open on my computer and I would wander around looking at things and go, oh, yeah, there is a nail salon. Oh, yeah. You know, those those sorts of things. I just found that enormously fun to think about what they would do. And because all the characters are so different, what they head for, what they find is defining of who they are as well. So... Um, James, for instance, it's all about shoes. Akira, it's often about books. Jordan likes sports, so it's working out, it's setting up a basketball court, that sort of thing. The girls' um, race is all about art, and Tiana is all about beauty, so she goes to a lot of the beauty parlours. And the baby is all about everything that you can find in Penrith Plaza that's fun for a baby. I have to say that one of the most fun things to write was uh, Grace and Shannon take Juno the baby down to build a bear and try <laughs> to build her a bear. And uh, that was just a place that my kids loved to go, so I know it quite well. I did not realise that still existed. The ca- it does, I know, and it's falling apart. Like, hardly anybody's using it, but mm. it's still there. I look at it every time I go past it. It's hard to imagine transplanting this book into something like the Carrington talk, talk about managing genre expectations. You would have a whole lot of Christie fans very upset that there was not a murder to solve. Yeah. Well, that's it. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not interested in death and illness. So, <laughs> so uh, no, nothing like that was going to happen. You touched on, you touched on before that sort of um, consumer edge to the, the book, the mall replenishes itself, but that, that, um, provision is a double-edged sword as we shockingly come to realize can you talk a little bit about that exploration of consumer culture here it feels like the kids dive in but also learn a little bit about pulling back yeah yeah it it there's there's a few deliberate um signals in the book one one is the fact and this is just taken from life this isn't this isn't uh something that i had to contrive which is that kids and and adults, by the way, are really driven by um, brands. So the book is full of naming. So the kids, the kids each have their own styles. Um, Shannon likes Doc Martens and Dangerfield. Uh, the boys, the two, the two straight boys, like Tommy Hilfiger and Champion 
and Nike and shoes. Um, Grace and Tiana are, are in City Beach when they they sort of disappeared. So that was always going to be a part of it. Um, there are a few things. I mean, it's it's not difficult to see the power and the weight of capitalism in our contemporary lives. It's not difficult to see that we're producing a lot of useless things. It's not difficult to see that we're, instead of fixing old things, we're just making new crappy things. Uh, that was something that I wanted to write about. I was really um, kind of appalled and taken aback by one of the things that we learned in after a Sydney lockdown, which was that when the lockdown was lifted, people lined up from midnight outside shopping malls in order to be able to get back in to shop. Apparently that was the thing they missed. And I was just like, wow, this is what it's come to. I mean, I love a shopping mall, don't get me wrong, but that for me was too much. And as you probably will have seen, I have an abiding hatred for Apple um, because their products are so expensive they're designed to fail so that they need to be replaced. They're incredibly expensive to fix. They're not always reliable. In some cases, they really are. And having said that, my kids have iPhones. Most of the young people I know have iPhones. I do totally get their appeal. But there is a sequence, a very deliberate sequence, in which my kids completely trash the Apple store, basically because they can't get anything to work. And um, I found that very, very satisfying to write. I mean, dear listener, still go and read Royals, even though Tegan is revealing this was a secret therapy session for her. Um, <laughs> Tegan, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, do you have time for one more question? Absolutely, I really do. So go for it. Amazing. Okay, this is this is a more process driven question. This is also we're working our way into heavy spoiler territory. If you are on the podcast, tune out now if you don't want maybe some some inside bits uh, revealed. Tegan, when I when I encounter a novel that does the world building that Royals does, I'm always fascinated by I guess in an unreal situation, what are the internal mechanics? Now you don't have to talk to me about the internal mechanics, but I am really curious about how important it was for you to have this worked out for yourself, for you to understand the the, the way your unreal world worked? Mm, yeah, again, a really great question. It's really, um, apart from the kids' books that I wrote when I was quite young, which were about magic and witches and things like that, it's the first speculative work I've ever done. And everything that I write is really character-driven, initially and it's also landscape driven I'm really interested I mean everybody should be interested in place and describing spaces so I had a hell of a lot of fun just describing the atmosphere of the mall the sun the nighttime what it feels like in there the sound of it the smell of it um the world building started very simple they're trapped that was all I knew um and bit by bit, I began to realise things. So world building is driven by both pleasure and need. So the pleasure is, oh, I'm going to make that happen. That's going to be fun. And the need is, well, if we do that, what's going to happen over here? Writing a novel, even a novel that isn't speculative, it's a bit like building a web. And if you move one part of the web, the rest of the web shakes. 
So you absolutely need to make your world watertight. So at first I had my kids stuck in the shopping mall and I had everything going off. So there was, you know, the, as you can imagine, the sushi, the fishmongers, sumo salad, KFC, everything goes off and the place becomes intolerable and piles and piles of rubbish accumulate. And I was, one of the things I was doing, I was stuck in the house, obviously. I was getting up every morning and telling my husband what I was doing with the plot. And one morning, not very far into the writing, he said, you seem to be really fixated on cleaning. I'm a bit worried that the book is being taken away by cleaning. And I was like, you're so right. And it was just a matter of kind of thinking my way. It's like, oh, hang on. And this was when the idea of the capitalism came. It's not a huge part of the book in the sense that the book is about fun and a bit about horror as well. The capitalism bit is a, is an underneath thing. But I started to think, oh, yeah, if it renews. The other thing I had to do was to keep the people outside out of the mall. And I couldn't do that with uh, a non-speculative sort of mechanism, you know, they just can't get in. Because if they were trying to get in but they couldn't get in, um, you'd see them bashing on the doors and, you know, sirens and police and they'd be surrounded all the time by that kind of thing. So I knew that was off the table. Um, and the idea, and, and again, this is a spoiler, but, you know, have at it, um, the idea that, in fact, they're stuck in a kind of loop um, that where outside the day is just happening over and over again, even though time seems to be passing for them, came uh, slowly, but it really came actually from something um an old writing friend said to me about Narnia and I was like, oh yeah, when they come out of the wardrobe or when they emerge from the various portals into Narnia, time has never passed. So time passes in Narnia, but not on earth as it were. Um, And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And that started to feed into the kind of internal logic, the thematic stuff. Um, So it really started not from the top down, but from the ground up. It's like, these are my ideas. What kind of world can I build from that foundation? Um, And, of course, what you want to give um, people to do when they're trapped somewhere is literally something to do. Mm. So that's one of the drivers. Um, Obviously, they're trying to get out, but going around bashing on the doors every single day for six weeks is not very interesting. So once they see that where they're living is not normal, so when when things start to renew, they understand that they're not in the real world anymore. And so they have this task that was really fun to watch them undertake of actually figuring out how it works. And again, with spoilers, I will tell your listeners that um, towards the end, the mall senses that they're trying to get out. So the mall is alive and it senses that they're trying to get out and it tries to keep them there and it tries to keep them there with the weight of products and the pleasure of food and things like that. So it literally begins to, um, I don't try not to say this too much in interviews because it doesn't sound that appealing, but anyway, it tries to drug them with capitalism. It tries to put them to sleep so it can absorb them into its own system. 
So that was really fun to write as well, the way they have to fight back against that um, continuous present of capitalism sleepiness is what that's about. <laughs> but, but, and I've got time to say this, so feel free to edit me saying I've got time. The, the other thing is that all of those realisations that I've just talked about, about capitalism and so forth, they're, again, I want to say they're underlying the book, but the book, what it's really, really about is adventure and character. So finding out what these kids are like, how they relate to each other, what they're going to eat every single night, so fun, like the KFC party they have in 40 Winks while they watch movies. Um, there's a bit towards the end where they just think, okay, fuck it, we're going to BWS. Um, the party they have with the music in the food courts, the basketball they play in the food courts, the reading they do, the hiding from each other. That was, that's what the book is really about. And I have to say that the book's gone out to um, some chosen readers, teenage readers, and 12-year-olds it seems to appeal, but also 25-year-olds seem to like it, which is great. And the message I've had back every single time, which is so lovely, is, I finished it in a day. So it's lovely to feel that impetus. It's a really thrilling book to have written and a really thrilling book to watch people read. Thank you again, Tegan, for indulging a process question. This is something that I love to explore because it, for me, it, it very literally, um, a, a book will rise or fall on this. If I, if I have something mysterious about a world, I need to know that it has an internal consistency yeah. Or, you know, it's when we're at school, if you show you're working, you'll still get some marks. <laughs> um, That's exactly right. Uh, but my, no, I think, I think internal logic, it has to be good. It has to be good. And it was really fun tinkering with that and working it out. And that's what I'm doing with the sequel at the moment. Oh, lovely. <laughs> well, look, this, this may be nothing then, but my, my personal favourite um, – was because you, you you didn't go into and I don't expect you to go into there like a, sort of an underlying force that that started all this. My my personal theory that I kind of latched onto and I'm sharing it with you because I have who else can I talk to about this? Nobody else I know yeah, has read absolutely. this book. Um, in the works of um, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, they both both together and individually work around this idea of belief kind of being a creative force in our world. Uh, so, you know, if something is mm. believed in enough, it it has, you know, it Terry exists. Pratchett anthropomorphizes the gods and things like that. Mm. My feeling was, you know, that consumer culture we were just talking about there has somehow imbued uh, consciousness or what have you onto the mall and that related directly to the lockdowns, the mall had suffered this kind of um, abandonment during lockdowns. And so what by taking your posse of, of children, it was kind of almost creating its own little, call it a terrarium, so that in the future it would never be lonely. And it was doing exactly what yeah. we do with when we when we have pets or, you know, we have fish, we look after them. And if they try to escape, we either will look after them more, you know, we'll make sure that they want to stay, or then we will literally, you know, try to force them. And so you had this anthropomorphosed kind of consumer deity that was uh, that was directly responding to lockdown by yeah. keeping by keeping yeah. its own supply of humans. That is a, that is a really great reading, and and let me say that every every book that you love is a conversation. The reader is involved almost as much as the writer is. You're not you're not 
you're not passive as a reader. You're really um, interacting with a book. You're, you're bringing your own experience to it and you're bringing other reading to it, which you've just really beautifully demonstrated. So you're actually right. I mean, that's not exactly the way I thought of it, but, yeah, the, one, of the, one of the little, um, they call it a strap line, you know, the, the, book, the thing that goes along the bottom of the book mm. that says, you know, one of the strap lines that we didn't use but that was in my head was the mall comes alive. Um, it's very much a being that, yeah, that's right. It, the, it's very much a being that, that wants and needs them to stay. Mm. Um, and in that sense, um, it's also, I guess, a warning about becoming sleepy or failing to resist um, some of the forces that are in Western society today. So, yeah, it, but it was really, you know, if I could say there was one guiding word for this book, it would be joy. I've never been so happy writing a book. I have never talked about a book so much. I'm usually fairly private as I write, but I talked every single morning to my husband and I've also got, pages, if you can call them pages, of emails. I, I have three really close writing friends, Charlotte Woods, Lucinda Holdforth, and Vicky Hastrich, and we have a rolling conversation, and they were so present in the book, and it was Lucinda who said the thing about Narnia. So I would get up in the morning, I would write to them, and then I would write to the book. So it, the, the whole process was just joyful in every way. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing a little a little bonus uh, writing process <laughs> mm. tidbit there. I am speaking with Tegan Bennett Daylight. We are discussing her new book, Royals. It is an absolute romp. It is a delight. It is gorgeous. And so has been this conversation. Tegan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I love to be on 2SER, so I'll come in anytime. That's it for the show today. Thank you again to Tegan Bennett Daylight. Tegan's new book is called Royals. It's out now. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch with stay in touch with Final Draft. You'll find us on social media, whatever name that social media happens to be going by today, or you could send us an email. Just send us an email to finaldraft at 2SER.com. Subscribe in your podcast app though, and that means you'll get a new interview, a new book club. There'll be just so many great conversations about books coming at you every week. If you are enjoying the podcast, could I ask you to uh, just like click on that star rating, give it a thumbs up. However, your podcast app lets you say, yeah, that was good. If you want to leave a comment, I'd be extra happy. I am Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back with more incredible books, more great conversations from incredible Australian authors soon on Final Draft. Like we try to get a couple out every single week. So from me, happy reading. Bye for now. <laughs>